Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure everybody's in fellowship, ready to focus and study on the word. And, and then we'll begin uh, our third lesson in our little series on uh, decision-making in the voting booth. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your grace that has showered us with just so many blessings. And so often we are so used to the blessings that we have and that we've been provided for, especially living in this country and the prosperity that we have all enjoyed for most of our lives and and the freedoms that we have. Father, it's easy to just relax and take some of these things for granted and uh, not to realize that every hour that we spend every day is richly blessed by you, and much has been provided because of those who have preceded us in this nation, going back to the, the original colonists, the way they established the governments in the colonies, the way they established the, the, uh, the government of this nation, and, Father, the impact that the Bible had on their thinking has had such a tremendous residual effect, and yet that has been lost because of the continuous attacks of those who are antagonistic to you, antagonistic to the Scripture, antagonistic to Christ, and we live in an era today when people are, everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes, and the, <clears throat> there has been a blanket rejection of doctrinal truth in our culture, and yet we're encouraged because we know that even in the midst of the darkest times, your grace is prevalent, your grace dominates, and that you sustain us and protect us, and so that encourages us. And we continue to pray for this nation, pray that you will protect us, pray for your grace in this election, that our freedoms might be preserved, that this nation might continue to be a place where the truth of your word is taught, where missionaries are sent out to proclaim the gospel throughout the world, and where this nation may still be a place where there is support for the nation Israel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we always need to start off with uh, a little uh, insight as we get into our series on decision-making in the voting booth. And once again, somebody sent me a a good little <coughs> piece of wisdom from uh, Maxine that voting is like choosing 
your favorite mosquito out of a swarm. Seems like that has more truth every time we hit an election uh, election season. The assumption that I'm bringing to this is that the Bible, as God's revelation to us, is uh, sufficient in every area of the Christian life, and that means that we can go to the Word of God to find a framework that we can apply to any issue, any challenge, any situation in life, whether it has to do with problems at work, whether it has to do with uh, problems in life, uh, financial problems, whether it has to do with understanding history, whether it has to do with politics or law or ethics, or just every single area of human intellectual activity comes under the umbrella of God as the Creator. And as the Creator, he has addressed all of these things, and he supplies a framework that we can derive from his Word. And by studying his Word, we learn this framework, and this framework gives us the ability to uh, make wise decisions in life. And so we have to mine this framework in order to come to understand how to go about making proper uh, decisions and wise decisions in life. And part of this assumption that I'm bringing to this study is also that when we make decisions in life, especially in the voting booth, we're deciding who will be the best leader, who is a good leader. And whenever you use these words, best, good, better, worse, bad, evil, uh, you are implying some sort of absolute value system that is the basis for your decision-making, that there is something we can appeal to that has universal implications that we can take and apply to making these decisions and that these are somehow knowable. And as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, our ultimate value system comes out of the Word of God. And so we can go to the Word of God to find principles that are exhibited throughout Revelation that can be applied to areas of economics, areas of politics, areas of leadership, areas of legislation that affect us at any point in time in, in, in our lives and, and in history. And so I'm not saying that we go, when, when we look at this, I'm not saying that we go to the Mosaic Law and there's a direct uh, transfer of principles or of laws in the Mosaic Law to another country or even across time to our culture, but that we see certain patterns and that these patterns are exhibited in the Mosaic Law. They're exhibited in the New Testament in the teaching of Jesus. They're exhibited in New Testament epistles so that we can trace these principles throughout Scripture and we come to understand that that these, uh, th- this gives to us certain universal realities, certain universal truths that are embedded within God's creation that can't be violated. And so all you have is different instances of those universal truths, the Mosaic Law being one, Sermon on the Mount being another, Jesus teaching to his disciples being another, New Testament epistles uh, being, being yet another. Now, last time I had three, I'm not going to review these again. You can go back and listen to the last lesson to get them, but I had three sets of rationales that summarize the first lesson. So all I'm going to put up here on the board this time is the third 
is the conclusion from each of these as a summary. And this uh, 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 supplies the foundation of this study. First conclusion, all Christians who are citizens of the United States should vote wisely and intelligently to preserve and defend the Constitution for this glorifies God. That is our job. That is also what the president swears to. It's what military officers swear to. It's that we are to preserve and defend the Constitution of the United States. And so in order to do that, we have to understand what the Constitution is and what it means, and we have to understand the kind of thinking that uh, is embodied within that Constitution. And that's the second uh, conclusion, that therefore the United States citizen, in order to vote intelligently and wisely, must understand the thinking embodied in the U.S. Constitution so that he can vote in a way that preserves and protects our heritage. If we don't understand why these ideas are expressed the way they're expressed and what the source was behind them, then we can't maintain the, free, the freedoms that are embodied in those legal documents. And so the third conclusion was that by understanding this biblical framework, a Christian can then vote more intelligently and wisely to preserve and protect the Constitution and the freedoms it recognizes. And that is that the biblical framework, there was a biblical framework that informed the thinking of the founding fathers. And so I spent a lot of time in the last two sessions establishing that because there's so much debate over whether or not this is a so-called Christian nation. And I understand that a nation can't be Christian in the sense of regenerate or justified or redeemed because that only applies to individuals. I understand that. But also that, that when you use the term Christian nation in the sense, of, uh, you can also use it in the sense of a theocracy. And it was never used that way in, by the founding fathers and in the founding documents. But they understood that there was a, a worldview, if you, if you will, that there was a, a way, that there was this framework of values that understood that, that there was a creator God, as stated several times in the Declaration of Independence, that there's a creator God who is the source of the, of rights and freedoms of the individual. And it is on the basis of understanding those rights and putting them within a, a political document that we can ensure the freedoms of people. And as I pointed out, John Adams and others said when asked, and there's plenty of testimony to this, to this effect, that that which provided the source of the ideas for the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution was primarily the Bible, the pastors. And again and again, I've ordered and I've picked up several books over the years and have been reading uh, over these and the, the stories, the anecdotes, the historical references of the pastors and what the, and you'll be hearing these stories as we go through the coming years. Uh, the pastors and their, what they taught from the pulpits and the phrases that they used. In fact, many of the phrases that are familiar to us that we found that are in the, uh, con uh, that are in the Declaration of Independence and Constitution have been discovered to have been in these documents. In fact, when um, I, I think McCullough points out in his uh, tells this anecdote in the uh, in his biography of John Adams that when he uh, Adams was and and Franklin were reading one of the initial drafts of the Declaration of Independence, Franklin comments, "It sounds like a sermon," because that's where these ideas 
were normally heard, and it was expected that the pastors during the week would address the issues related to freedom and property and liberty so that the people would understand these things, and that came out of their understanding uh, their understanding of the Scriptures. And so we emphasize this, and as Bible-believing Christians, I pointed out, we believe that the Scripture is best understood and interpreted in, the, in, in terms of a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation, and that this idea of interpreting documents as they were originally intended in light of the intent of the original author, uh, taking into account the historical context, the literary context, and interpreting these documents as, the, as in terms of normal language is the way we interpret just about anything from, from our phone bill to the instructions on how to fill out our tax returns to reading a historical document. And even though you have, I mean, it's one of the, critiquing postmodernism is just so easy. I mean, it's just amazing how, how simple it is. But in postmodernism, you have these postmodern writers who write about interpretation and say that the writer can make I mean, the, it, 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 the meaning is ultimately determined by the reader, and that the reader can can read something and assign any value he wants to to it. But the discrepancy is that the reader can't assign just any value he wants to to what that postmodern writer is saying. He is writing assuming that the reader is going to understand his intent and his meaning. Otherwise, why would he even engage in the activity? So it's just it's just such a, a, a logical fallacy that's embedded in that the whole uh, way of thinking in terms of of, uh, of relativism and subjective interpretation. And I pointed out the uh, other night on Tuesday night, I had this quote that uh, came from Clarence Thomas in a lecture he gave just last uh, Thursday where he said, let me put it this way, there are really only two ways to interpret the Constitution. Try to discern as best we can what the framers intended or make it up. And see, that's the same issue that came out of the 19th century in terms of biblical interpretation. You either interpret the Bible the way it was intended or you make it up. And and that's it. And so what we had today in judicial activism is this idea of just, just making it up as you go along. And one thing I failed to point out on... Uh, on Tuesday night, which I wanted to make sure I made a point about and add, is that back at the end of August when uh, Rick Warren, who's the pastor of uh, the, the um, I forget the name of it. Saddleback. Yeah, Saddleback, the um, uh, purpose-driven everything. Uh, he did, an, did When he had the, the <clears throat> interview with Rick Warren, I mean with um, uh, Obama and with McCain, and he did an excellent job of setting that whole thing up, but one of the questions that he asked was, of the Supreme Court justices that are now sitting, is there one that you would want to get rid of? And what was interesting is Obama's answer. He said he would get rid of Clarence Thomas. See, Obama is intent on getting rid of original intent, meaning of the Constitution. He wants to change the meaning of the Constitution and to reinterpret it and see the problem with that is that if he's going to defend and protect the constitution which he's going to swear to in the oath of office what constitution what does he mean by constitution what does is mean see we continue to have this same fundamental 
problem of, of interpretation. So that I wanted to remind everybody of that. Now we're going to move on, and tonight I want to go on and talk about the front, start developing the framework that we use in making these kinds of decisions, and that comes out of something that's familiar to everybody. I've taught on this in different times in different series, but I'm going to summarize some things. There's some things I want to add. Every time I do this, I, my, my thinking develops a little bit, and that's called the divine institutions. And we are going to use the divine institutions as a framework for analyzing political uh, positions. Now, in the background of this, we have to understand that the Bible emphasizes ethics over economics. And by that, I mean that we've been influenced through the worldview shift to paganism over the last century to century and a half to think in terms of pragmatics and to separate ethics from the practical aspects of politics and, and leadership. And yet that was, as I pointed out on Tuesday night, and that was really the theme on Tuesday night, the founding fathers never saw that dichotomy. And that dichotomy is not in the scripture. And just a couple of passages that I've, we've cited each night, Proverbs 14.34 and Proverbs 29.2. Righteousness exalts a nation. The source of blessing in a nation, biblically speaking, is righteousness. God tells Israel that if you are a righteous nation by my standards, then I will bless you with all of these blessings. But if you violate my righteousness, then all of these negative consequences are going to result. You're going to have depression. You're going to have recession. You're going to have... Uh, be defeated militarily, you're going to lose your power base. All of that results, the, the priority is on, on ethics, and as Christians we know that ethics can only come out of the revelation of God. And as a result of an ethically sound rule, the people, the people rejoice. So that, that addresses this, an issue that comes out of the paganism of our culture where we've, we've allowed the culture to influence us into creating this false dichotomy. And so you go back and you look at the, I remember back in the 19, uh, 1990s when there was a lot, the debate over uh, the election of uh, President Clinton that the people were trying to make an issue out of character and th- th- they weren't getting anywhere. Because the culture doesn't believe the character matters, that uh, we just have somebody who knows how to handle handle the economics, and that is a pagan idea. That is not a not a biblical idea. Well, we'll tie economics into some of this in a different way tonight. That I think is going will probably surprise some of you. At least it's going to present it in a way that that I haven't talked about it before. And it's probably going to give you uh, a little different orientation. I'm going to start with understanding what the divine institutions are as divine institutions. The term divine institution has been used by Christians and theologians to speak of those absolute social structures. Now think about this. The, The essence of these is more social than it is uh, economic. The term divine institution has been used by Christians to speak of those absolute social structures instituted by God or established by God and embedded within the social structure of the human race. Now, that's really key to understand this. 
that as God creates man as a social being, there are there is embedded within his makeup as an image bearer of God certain social realities. And if those are breached, then there are negative consequences because that's the way God, man was made by God. So that's what, we, what I mean by these institutions. They're established by God and embedded within the social structure of the human race. Thus, these are for the entire human race, believer or unbeliever alike, and they're unbreakable realities. Once we try to start engineering society away from these, then there's going to be a collapse. It just doesn't work. You know, one, one simple illustration of this is just the seven-day week of creation. You've had, both in the French Revolution and in the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, attempts to shift to a 10-day work week, and it just doesn't work because there's something embedded in the fabric of God's creation that builds on a seven-day cycle, and you just can't change it. And so that's part of what we see in uh, in the divine institutions. Now, as we discuss uh, these divine institutions, we're going to, I'm going to focus on, I thought I would get to the first three tonight. I doubt that I'll get to two and three, but I might. Uh, one thing I want to point out is there's a difference between uh, conventions and institutions. A lot of people today, the pagan idea is that that these are simply um, simply conventions. Let me put these up here so that you know what they are. The first one is individual responsibility, individual responsibility. And over the years, you've heard this referred to and and you, different labels from different teachers. Some have called it volition. Some have called it volitional responsibility. Some have called it responsible labor. But as you'll see tonight, as I, as I focus on this, the key element in this is individual responsibility, that each individual is accountable to his creator for what he does with what God gives him. But there are some fabulous implications that come out from that and the story, the episode in Genesis chapter 2. The second divine institution is marriage. God defines what marriage is. It's not something that man invented to fit a need. That only comes out of paganism or Darwinistic culture that as, as man sort of works his way up from being an ape and a, and grubbing around in the fields trying to find things and, and as a hunter and gatherer he finally decides that, that they, that it works better if there's, there's, uh, some sort of, of a co- connection established between, uh, men and women and that family sort of develops from that, that it's all sort of trial and error over thousands of years. Uh, that would make it a convention. And the difference between a convention as, and an institution, uh, Tommy Ice's son came up with this illustration. I think it's a great one. Some people in Texas think that Friday night high school f- football is an institution. Now, it's not an inst- I hate to disappoint you. That's not an institution. That is a convention. Okay? An institution is something that is embedded within reality. Some of you think that, or at one time you thought that watching a Dallas Cowboy football on Sunday afternoon was an institution, but, you know, that was only when Tom Landry was still running things. Um, no, these are, these are conventions. They are the result of cultural, cultural decisions. And so how, you, you can read literature 
in the classical period of Greece, and there were certain things that characterized the literature of the Greeks and certain things that characterized the literature of the Romans. And then you go five or six hundred years later, and it changes because these were conventions. So it's, it's fluid. It's different from culture to culture, and it's not bred into the warp and woof of, of, of reality as God created things. But these institutions are established by God, and you can't change them. The third divine institution is marriage. The fourth divine institution is government. And I put judicial up there because it comes out of the delegation of judicial responsibility for for dealing with murder in the covenant with Noah. And then the fifth divine institution is distinguished from that because it doesn't come along until the Tower of Babel incident, which is several hundred years after God establishes the covenant with Noah. You, you had, somebody once asked me, said, well, how can you have government without a nation? Well, you have all kinds of governing. We, we just had a deacon's meeting. That's a government function. You can have tribal government. You can have a clan government, family government. There's all kinds of different ways in which you can have government. But the idea of distinguishing nations, national borders, and national identity and keeping those unbreakable or inviolate is uh, not established until the tower, uh, until the Tower of Babel. So we see that uh, these are institutions. Conventions relate to fashions or styles or personal preference. Uh, people in India dress differently than people in Nigeria. People in Nigeria dress differently than people in Russia. Uh, people in Norway eat pickled fish, and people in uh, Texas eat beef. You know, these are conventions. They change from culture to culture. But divine institutions are for all mankind, believer and unbeliever alike, African, Indian, South American, Russian, it doesn't matter. Uh, If you don't follow these, then your culture will not go forward. It will fall apart. And that is the next key thing to recognize here. Those first three divine institutions are all established in Genesis 2 before the fall. That's important. Abolition, marriage, and family. Now, they don't start having a family, but the, the, the idea is there in the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so these three divine institutions that are established before sin enters into human history have a different role than the next two. These are established to promote productivity and advance civilization. Embedded in the, the what's called sometimes the dominion mandate of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, is that man is to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue, rule and subdue the earth. He is to extend his influence over the earth. This involves productivity which is at the very core of the whole concept of, of labor and economy. Then you, the second two divine institutions come along after the fall and after the flood, and they are designed to restrain evil. So there is a difference in their basic function. The first three to promote productivity, which is key to promote productivity and actually, as we'll see, marriage and family come, are intimately connected to individual responsibility. And then government and nations 
are designed to restrain evil. And another thing that we could say is that the role of government is to restrain evil from restricting the first three divine institutions. The role of government is to keep evil from restraining and changing the first three divine institutions uh, so that government is to protect individual responsibility. But man wants to dump responsibility. He wants to claim victimhood. And see, we have subsections, subcultures in our country who want to trade on their uh, ethnic victimhood based on things that happened historically. And this comes out of pure paganism, and they want to make the solution government, the, the, the fourth divine institution, rather than individual responsibility, the first divine institution. They want to reverse things. But you have to care, these have to operate and, in the proper order and within the proper sphere. There's a, just a complete failure to understand the uh, integration here. But our founding fathers understood this, even though they, you're not going to find places where they, they outlined it or systematized it this way, but you read what they wrote, they understood this. They developed this in, in, in numerous ways. Now, in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we learn that God created man in his own image. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So that male and female are both in the image and likeness of God. That's important. We are reflections of God. We, re- we are representatives of God. We are, as it were, a finite replica of his nature in, in an infinite sense. So we have to, to really understand and unpack this. We have to understand a little bit about uh, who and what he is. And I dealt with this in a lot of detail back when I did the work on in, Gen- in this passage in Genesis 2 in the early Genesis series. And so I'm assuming that you have some frame of reference there. And the, in verse 28, we see the basic command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves over the earth. This is responsible rulership. It's a totally different framework for how man should handle the environment than what we have in modern pagan, uh, modern pagan environmentalism. Now, let's stop a minute and just think a little bit about this, this idea of man being in the image of God. Because the first thing we ought to note is that there are two ways to understand how uh, understand the Trinity. Two ways to understand the Trinity. God exists eternally as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons who we say co-equal, co-infinite, and co-eternal. Three persons. Okay, that means that it's what is referred to as the ontological Trinity. If you want to have a big, big theological world, that that has to do with in terms of their very essence. In terms of the very being of God, they are equal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are persons, and they relate to one another. And throughout all of eternity, they have loved one another. They socialize together, just to put it in another term uh, that maybe jars you just a little bit, but they have a society there. That's what a society is. It is more than one person. There is a social group there, and so there is something social that is at the core of the being of God. The three persons of the Trinity relate to one another, they love one another, and they enjoy one another. 
And in their being, they are completely equal. They share identical attributes. None of them knows more than another. None can do more than another. None can love more than another. And none is more just or righteous than another. They are completely equal. But in terms of their function, there, there are distinctions. In terms of their roles, there are distinctions. And the term that theologians have used to describe that is the economic trinity. Wow. We're not out of the Trinity yet. We're already talking about that there is an integral relationship between social reality and economic reality. Now, the reason I say that is that you'll often hear it said by some people today that they are uh, economic or fiscal conservatives, but they are social liberals, as if those can be... Economics can be separated from from the social. What I'm showing you is that if you're a Bible-believing Christian where you're building your view of reality out from the nature of God as your starting point, you can't bifurcate social and economic because social and economic come together in a perfect unity within the Godhead. Now, I know that your brain cells are just really warping out at this point, but that is fundamental to understand what happens to the image of God. Because when God creates man and places him in the garden, he's going to assign labor to him. Now, it doesn't become toil until after the curse, but he has, he has labor assigned to him. So labor is a part of that first divine institution. He's to be fruitful and multiply. Of course, that wasn't laborious, but it was a responsibility to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to rule over all of the animals. That is labor. It is not tainted by sin yet, so there is absolute harm. There's no resistance from nature. That's what happens after the fall when thorns and thistles grow up and there's a fight. In, In the garden, Adam's out there, and he's looking at the trees, and he, well, they need to be pruned a little bit, and they're just so much cooperation. He prunes them the next day, wakes up, and they've just grown so much. I mean, there's just this, this harmony within the productive sphere. There's not fight, a fight and antagonism between nature and man as you have afterwards. He doesn't sweat. He just, and he enjoys uh, the product of his, of his labor. But Adam is created and he is assigned responsibility. He's created to assume responsibilities and to labor. But the first job that God gives him, one of the first jobs God gives him as part of that is to start identifying, classifying, categorizing all the animals. And God's, God's multitasking here. He's teaching men what it means to subdue and to rule over the animals and at the same time, he's teaching him that all these animals have come by two by two. There's a male and a female, but there's no counterpart to Adam yet. And so he's going to recognize this need, and then God is going to bring him a woman to be his Aetzer, his assistant. And to understand the role of the Aetzer is to understand the, it's an economic, it's a, marriage is social. I hope you all understand that marriage is social. But it's economic. The woman is created to help the man fulfill his role in labor and in fulfilling that God-given task to rule and subdue. So you can't separate the social from the economic, at least not if you want to try to stay within the parameters of a biblical worldview. 
of what the Bible is teaching about how to look at all these issues in life. And see, we haven't gotten to the fall yet. After the fall is when all this stuff fragments. But we understand these first three divine institutions in this sense that because man is in the image of God, the economic facets, the labor, can't be distinguished from the social. You start messing with the social aspects and trying to be social engineers and change things, and of course you all know where I'm going with that in terms of trying to change family, marriage, and all these other things. You start messing with that as the as the as the Marxists did in Russia, as as uh, as they did in <clears throat> in the French Revolution, then the society collapses. It can't survive because God God has built it in such a way so that there is an integral relationship between his social institutions and the economic consequences of following those, uh, those social institutions. Now, the first thing that we see God doing in the garden, if we're created in the image of God, then we're to represent God, we're to reflect who he is. What is the first thing that we see God doing in the garden? I mean, not before the garden. What's the first thing we see God doing in Genesis chapter 1? God created. He is a laborer. He is a workman. He is a craftsman. He is an artist. He is an architect. And he is planning. And we know from Scripture that you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all involved in creation, and that's their distinct roles. The Father's the architect, the Son is the one who is the building contractor, and you have God the Holy Spirit who's the one in Genesis 1-2 who's hovering over the face of the earth. That's their economic function. Later on in, in John, we understand that Jesus can't do anything without it being under the authority of the Father. So there is the Father uh, begot, begets the Son, and the Son and the Father send the Holy Spirit. So there's that's their economic function, but their economic function doesn't uh, it does, is not separated from their ontological reality. Okay, y'all chew on that for a while. But what I want you, what I want you to understand from that is that when you hear this, people talking about, well, you know, the Bible just addresses the spiritual life. No, it doesn't. It addresses everything. When you hear people say, well, I, I'm all for being, uh, you know, economically conservative, lower taxes, smaller government. Uh, all of these things, but the government doesn't need to address uh, social issues or ethical issues such as homosexual marriage or uh, all of these other things, then then we don't need to we need to do that. What I'm showing you is from the very beginning, the Bible doesn't allow us to make those kind of bifurcations and dichotomies in life. That kind of thing really only comes out of the introduction of the uh, Enlightenment pagan thought that that shifted our uh, authority base in the 19th century. So, the first picture we see of God then is that He is a laborer, and if man is going to be a reflection of God, then man is going to be involved in, in labor. And so we come to the first divine institution, which is uh, I'm calling individual responsibility. And it emphasizes the fact that man is accountable to God. So there's going to be three dimensions to this that we need to think about. The first is the aspect of spiritual accountability. And when I say spiritual accountability, the first thing we ought to understand from that is that it necessitates someone to whom we're accountable. 
which means that authority is embedded in the nature of reality as it is in the Godhead. Authority isn't something God said man needed to learn because of sin and to bring order out of chaos. God had a, There was authority in the Godhead from the very beginning. The Father is in authority over the Son and the Spirit. The Father and the Son sent the Spirit. So there's an authority hierarchy within the Trinity. That's the economic function. So there is spiritual accountability even in paradise, in the perfection of the garden. There is an authority structure that is... Uh, established to create the creature is accountable to the creature. Second thing is he's given responsibilities. He is to labor, but it's not toilsome. It's not negative. It's not from the sweat of his brow. And in his in his labor, he is to uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, rule and subdue over the earth. He is to also Genesis chapter uh, two. He is to. Uh, Tend and keep the garden. And those words, the tending is the word for work. He's to work in the garden. And the word for keep has the idea of guarding. Now, we get something important out of this because not only does he have the responsibility of production and producing something with what God has given him, which informs the foundation of the whole subject of economics, deals with production and, and labor, but also we have the idea of protection. So we have produ- pro- production and protection here, and production means you're producing fruit and you can enjoy, you possess the fruits of your own production, which is private ownership of property, whether it's physical property, which is what we normally think of with that, or today there's all kinds of discussions in, in, in the legal realm as to how you identify ownership of intellectual property. That, that property isn't just real property, there's abstract property uh, as well. And so man is to produce and protect uh, that's embedded within this. Now, what did, Gar- what did uh, Adam have to protect the garden from? Well, that, that serpent, Satan, that's going to show up in the next chapter. That he has to, that that's part of his protection. Now, when we talk about protection, in in this country, one of the things that we talk about is <clears throat> the private ownership of weapons. That we have the right, uh, according to the Second Amendment, we have the right to keep and bear arms. And in the Second Amendment, the idea that keeping and bear arms is related to a militia, but a militia is somewhat related to uh, what we might call the ready reserve today, and that is as opposed to uh, regular reserves or active duty reserves in the the military. Ready reserves don't show up. They don't go uh, out on weekend exercises or anything. Uh, But at any moment with the militia, the call is going to go out, and everybody's going to grab their, their rifle and go to the assembly point and be prepared to protect hearth and home. So they, the individual citizen soldier is at the essence of the concept of a militia, and the citizen soldier needs to have uh, the ability to protect himself with the latest technology in weaponry. Because one of the things that he's going to be protecting himself in order to secure liberty is from the government. And that was the idea in the... In the um, and in the Constitution is to protect from the tyranny of the government. And you can go to passages like First Samuel, uh, 
and 1 Samuel 7 as they're under the dominion of the Philistines, the Philistines would not allow blacksmiths to operate in Israel. See, the Philistines were into the Iron Age and iron production and iron importation, and so they had iron weapons, but they didn't want any blacksmith, blacksmiths working with iron in Israel, leaving them in the Bronze Age, so they, the, the Philistines had superior weapons, and that's how tyranny works, is it keeps the citizenry from having the latest technology, and you can read that any way you want to, assault weapons or whatever, so that you can protect yourself against whatever the government can bring to bear against you, uh, in any kind, in any kind of assault, uh, to establish their uh, their tyranny, and the idea of self-protection is clearly uh, reinforced by the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 22. This occurs right before he goes to the cross. He's talking to his disciples, and he said to them in Luke 22:36, "But now, whoever has a money belt, but now is the night before he goes to the cross." And he's saying, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. See, earlier in in the ministry when he sent the disciples out, he sent them out, don't take food, don't take a cloak, just God's going to provide for you along the way. Now it's changing. A new dispensation is going to start. He says, take a money belt, take it along. Likewise also a bag, take your suitcase. And whoever has a sword, who who has no sword, is to sell his coat and buy one. Self-protection, he recognizes that they should have sword. In the next verse, he asks the disciples if they have any swords as they get ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and their response is, yes, Lord, we have two. That's where Peter got one of the swords to cut off when he cut off the ear of Malthus. But there's a recognition here of self-defense and the right of carrying a concealed weapon. It is a biblical right. Now, we're applying these principles we derive from Scripture to our candidates on various issues related to the Second Amendment at this point. And according to John McCain's website, and what I've tried to do in this is go to the, the candidates' own websites as well as look at some analysis in some of the papers, but primarily to look at their own websites to see what their campaigns say their positions are. And McCain believes the right that it is the right of law-abiding citizens to keep and bear arms, and that's a fundamental individual constitutional right, and that we have a responsibility to ensure that criminals who violate the law are prosecuted to the fullest rather than restricting the rights of law-abiding citizens in the area of gun control. And it sta- he states on his website, gun control is a proven failure in fighting crime. Law-abiding citizens should not be asked to give up their rights because of criminals, criminals who ignore gun control laws anyway. So he believes that gun manufacturers shouldn't be held liable for crimes. He opposes restrictions on assault weapons and ammunition types. He voted against the Brady Bill and the assault uh, weapon ban. On the other hand, we have uh, Senator Obama. And Senator Obama is rather vague and uncertain on some of these issues, especially after the Supreme Court ruled uh, 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 ruled against the law in Washington, D.C. that banned the uh, ownership of handguns. And so he he's extremely vague in what his position is. But we have, of course, a legislative record that we can go to. When he was a, a state senator in Illinois, he endorsed the Illinois handgun ban, which he later... Uh, lied about and, and uh, claimed that it was a staffer that filled out the questionnaire. Uh, so he's, he's, he's trying to avoid letting anybody really know what he believes. He's report, it's reported that he uh, was the most consistent 
Illinois State Senator in voting uh, for enforcing and expanding gun control laws. And um, uh, since we don't have a lot of clear statements from him, I want to read from uh, a letter that was posted on the Internet by Richard A. Pearson, who's the executive director of the Illinois State Rifle Association, dated October the 10th, 2008, addressed uh, fellow sportsmen. My name is Rich Pearson. I've been active in the firearm rights movement for over 40 years. For the past 15 years, I've served in the Illinois State Capitol as chief lobbyist for the Illinois State Rifle Association. I lobbied Barack Obama extensively while he was an Illinois State senator. As a result of that experience, I know Obama's attitudes towards guns and gun owners better than anyone. The truth be told, in all my years in the Capitol, I've never met a legislator who harbors more contempt for the law-abiding firearm owner than Barack Obama. Although Obama claims to be an advocate for the Second Amendment, his voting record in the Illinois Senate paints a very different picture. While a state senator, Obama voted for a bill that would ban nearly every hunting rifle, shotgun, and target rifle owned by Illinois citizens. That same bill would authorize the state police to raid homes of gun owners and forcibly confiscate banned guns. Obama supported a bill that would shut down law-abiding firearm manufacturers, including Springfield Armory, Armalite, Rock River Arms, and Les Bear. Obama also voted for a bill that would prohibit law-abiding citizens from purchasing more than one gun uh, per month. Without a doubt, Barack Obama has proven uh, to be himself to be an enemy of the law-abiding firearm owner. And so uh, it looks as if he doesn't recognize the value of the individual citizen protecting his own private property. So once private property values, uh, once the value of private property begins to erode, you also have this, it fits within a consistent web. And my thesis is Barack Obama is a Marxist, which is seen in, from many of his views, and he sat under a Marxist pastor in his Black Liberation Theology uh, messages, and that's what, Jeremiah, that's what Black Liberation Theology is, comes out of uh, Latin American Liberation Theology, which is just uh, which is liber- uh, Marxism uh, wrapped around the Bible, trying to give it some kind of uh, uh, justification. And if a man isn't bright enough to understand what Marxism is and can't spot it sitting in a pew and hearing it Sunday after Sunday, then he... You know, how can he really be bright enough to serve as president? When would he know uh, that that uh, politicians were trying to get him to be uh, uh, Marxist? So we go on to back to looking at our passage in Genesis chapter one, Gen- uh, Genesis chapter two. There are many who think that it's somewhat radical. They've never heard it quite expressed that way, that labor is instituted, that work is instituted before the fall because we're so wrapped up in our own experience that we can't think of work as being non-toilsome. We can't think of labor apart from it being laborious and by the sweat of the brow because that's our post-fall experience. But the reality is that there, there, uh, there is labor before the fall. So when we look at this breakdown, we start with spiritual accountability because the one negative of all the commands that God gives, remember there be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue, rule, tend, and keep, or, or work and guard. One negative, and the one negative is uh, don't eat from the fruit of the tree the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So that's the spiritual accountability. 
There is labor, not toilsome, and man has the right to enjoy the fruits of his labor, which develops the whole concept of private property and private ownership of property. And we can develop this whole concept of uh, private ownership of property all the way, all the way through Scripture. For example, in Genesis chapter 12, God gives a piece of real estate to Abraham. Uh, in the next chapter, there's a uh, conflict between Abraham's uh, men and Lot's men. They're their cattle men. So they own property. They own cattle. They own sheep. They own all of this different property. And so Abraham says, look out over the land and take the area that you, that you want. And so there's a recognition implied in that of the legitimacy of private property. And what I'm pointing out here is that while these things aren't the point of the text and these things aren't necessarily the point of some of the laws in the Mosaic Law or the point of some of the parables that Jesus gave, they, the, these, these stories don't work, the parables don't work, the laws don't work if God isn't recognizing the legitimacy of private ownership of property, the private accumulation of wealth apart from government interference, and the right of the individual to decide how to how to utilize his own wealth without government without government interference. When you get to the Ten Commandments, which is basically a summation of the Mosaic Law, the ten key principles out from which the the other 603 commandments are going to be developed. Two of the ten commandments relate to private property. The first two commandments relate to God. Only two commandments relate to... uh, Only two subjects have two commandments related to them. One is God, and one is the protection of private, private property. And the eighth commandment is, Thou shalt not steal which assumes the right of ownership of property, and the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's property. But class warfare, which is often promoted in this country by various liberals of both parties, promotes the violation of the Tenth Commandment and encourages people who do not have to want to benefit from the uh, fruits of the hard work of those that have. And so they are basically being encouraged by the government to covet the money and the possessions of, of what others have earned and what others have worked for. And then the government is used in Marxism and socialism, and we saw a classic example last week when Joe the Plumber, the famous Joe the Plumber, uh, which wasn't a setup, just, and it doesn't matter anything about him, he asks a basic question. If I buy a business and that business is going to make more than $250,000 a year, am I going to be penalized by the taxes that you're, uh, that you're recommending? And the answer was, well, we need to spread the wealth. That is Marxism. That is socialism. The path to socialism leads to servitude. It, the irony of this, in case you haven't caught it, and at the risk of being called a racist, the irony of this is we're on the verge of electing uh, the first black president of the United States, and what his agenda is is return all of us to a state of slavery, slavery to the federal government. And, and yet that irony has been completely lost on everybody. Everybody's so scared that they're going to be labeled a racist for pointing it out that nobody's going to point out out the obvious. But that's exactly what's happening. We have to recognize that on the basis of what the Bible teaches about economics and labor, uh, 
People are, can be classified in two, one of two areas. They are either producers or they are consumers. They're either producers or they are consumers. Now, let me tell you what I mean by those. A producer is someone that when you look at the sum total of their involvement in their, in their society, their work adds to the net worth of the culture. Consumers are those who take more from the culture or society than they put into it. Now, there are two categories of consumers. There are those who cannot work or support themselves due to the fact that they're too old or they're too young or they are injured in some way or handicapped in some way. They can't, they can't produce. Now, the Bible recognizes a valid provision for them, and that's the only valid provision that the Bible has for government to provide for widows and orphans. And in the Mosaic Law, one of the three tithes was taken up only once every three years. It's the third tithe. And it was 10% was taken up for the widows and orphans. And it's only taken up every three years. So, so 3% of the gross national product of Israel, only three, three and a third percent, once every three years, three and a third percent went to providing that, uh, that safety net for the widows the widows and orphans. The Bible has a consistent view that rejects the lazy person and values and rewards uh, the worker, the producer. The producers are owners or laborers or workers as everyday people who contribute to society through their their work, through their contributions, through their gifts of time, talent, and treasure. These are the ones who protect and defend the society, and these are the ones who are, are valued. The consumers are, are those who are classified as wicked and lazy, and I'll show you the verse in that in just a minute. In the Bible, there are 205 verses that deal with the poor. None of these assign responsibility for the poor to the government except for that one tithe in the Mosaic Law. Uh, the responsibility for the poor is divided up between uh, three, three, um, three groups. The first is the individual themselves. They are to go to work, and they, if they don't work, they don't eat. That's first Thess- our Second Thessalonians three ten through twelve. You don't work, you don't eat. The second group that's supposed to take care of the poor are other individuals. It's the responsibility of others to exercise care and compassion, take care of their families, their family members, to provide for them. It's not the responsibility of the government. And then the third. Uh, group that's responsible is the church. It's the responsibility of the church to take care of widows and orphans. That's la- laid out in first uh, passages like First Timothy chapter four and others. But not, it's not the responsibility of the government. The government is extremely inefficient at doing so. According to the American Institute of Philanthropy, which sets up guidelines and evaluates nonprofit charities in terms of their efficiency in getting money to its intended goal, that is the poor people. The American Institute of Philanthropy recognizes that at least 60% of the money that is donated to a nonprofit charity should end up in the hands of those to whom it's intended to go, that is, the poor. And that, that's their benchmark. 40% of every dollar that goes in, it goes to covering just the uh, basic overhead and administrative costs and all those things. But it, it, you shouldn't donate to a charity if uh, less than 60% gets in the hands of the, those it's intended for. Since the beginning of the war on poverty back during Lyndon Johnson's uh, presidency in the, in the 60s, $9 trillion has been taken by the federal government to end poverty. 
but only 30% of that money has reached the poor. According to the figures given by the American Institute of Philanthropy, the last thing in the world we'd want to do is to give money to the federal government. It's the most inefficient uh, way to uh, solve the problem of poverty that there could be. It's like using a hammer to polish crystal. Uh, one example of, of um, that, w- that we can use on private industry handling some, some problems like this is that in government prisons, there's a 68% recidivism rate. But in private faith-based prisons, there's only an 8% recidivism rate. Government can't get the job done, but we keep being told that that's the way to do it, and all it does is to uh, all it does is to line the pockets of those in power. So what we see is the the whole principle of responsible labor. Now, once again, I'm going to run over just a little bit, but indulge me. What we see summarized in Scripture, I won't go to these passages. You can look them up later. If you look through the, the, the Gospels, there are many times that Jesus talks about uh, landowners, the king, gives certain money to his servants or to his slaves, and then comes back and asks for an accountability. What we learn from these various passages is, number one, that man has the right to employ who he will without the interference of government regulation telling him what kind of insurance he should provide, what kind of wage he should pay. The Bible is completely against a minimum wage and all the other myriads of regulations that hinder business and destroy capital. The place to look for this is in the parable of the landowner in Matthew 20, uh, verses 1 and following, specifically in verse 8, the landowner decides uh, how much to pay. This is the landowner gets up early in the morning, goes down to Gester and Long Point to the labor pool down there where all the Colombians hang out, and he picks a few laborers to go out to work on the, the house he's building. And he goes back three hours later, and he picks another five or six guys that are hanging out. He goes back a couple hours later, picks out another five or six. The first guys, he said, if you work for me all day, I'll give you a denarius. The rest of the guys, all day long, he just says, I'll give you a fair wage. When he comes to the end of the day, it's 5 o'clock, he goes down, hires a couple of more guys. They go show up at the house, and as dusk comes at 7 o'clock, see, it wasn't an eight-hour work day. As dusk comes, he comes up and he says, okay, I'm going to pay off everybody. And he starts with the guys he hired last and gives them a denarius, but they only work two hours. And he pays everybody a denarius. It's up to the landowner to determine how much he's going to pay. It's not the government's responsibility. In a Marxist interpretation of that, uh, the landowner would have to be the evil uh, capitalist who's exploiting the worker. And in the parable, the landowner is God. See, Marxism is inherently anti-God because of the way it, it would have to handle certain things uh, of this particular of this particular nature. In Matthew 18:23 and following, uh, in that particular parable, this is where you have the king and he has a servant who owes him, or you have a landowner actually who has a servant who owes him uh, a large amount of money. And he, he, he comes to him and says, I can't pay. Give me time to pay the debt. And the landowner eventually decides, okay, I'm going to be gracious and forgive you. And then this, this story goes on. This guy goes to somebody who owes him a lot of money, and he insists that he pays him. And then the landowner finds out and says, okay, since you don't understand grace, I'm going to, uh, 
I'll go back and I'm going to force you to pay everything that I originally was going to forgive you. And what's enforced there is accountability, that everybody is accountable. Ultimately, it reinforces the first divine institution of responsibility. And that forgiveness of debt or how you handle the money is up to the king or the landowner or the, or the uh, person who uh, heads up the business. Matthew twenty five fourteen and following, you have the parable of the talents. The, uh, the, the uh, one man is going to go away and travel for a while, so he calls in his stewards and he gives them different, different amounts of money to call talents. And two of them invest, put the money at risk, but they gain. The third one says, oh, he's such a cruel taskmaster, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to risk the money. I'm just going to go out and bury it in the yard, so when he comes back, I'm still going to have it. Well, when the, when the uh, man comes back and he asks them uh, what they did with the money, he rewards and praises the first two because they risked the money and they, uh, they earned reward on it and they increased its value. But when he comes to the third one, he can, and, and all he did was bury the money. The, the, the man who is the Lord condemns him for being wicked and lazy. He doesn't say, oh my, I'm going to exercise compassion and I'm going to take a little away from the first guy and a little more away from the second guy and give it to you. He says, you've been wicked and lazy, so I'm taking everything away from you and you'll have nothing. And I'm going to give it to the other guys. See, that's how God works. God doesn't have this pseudo-compassion that we need, to, we need to somehow subsidize laziness. In the early colonies, the Puritans tried an experiment with socialism and found out that the people who were, had an inclination to be lazy would just become more and more lazy. And, and ride on the shirt tails of those who were more productive. So the Bible is totally against that. This is what we have in passages such as Ephesians 4.28. Paul says, he who steals must steal no longer. That applies to the government and applies to legalized theft. But, of course, they don't want to listen to that. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. See, labor in and of itself is valuable. He must, he must work performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. See, you can't share unless there's a surplus. There has to be the, the accumulation of wealth in order to have the resources to give to somebody. First Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. See, Paul's just mean old capitalist, doesn't care about people. No, this is the word of God. If you don't work, you don't eat. For we hear that some among you, goes on to say, are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we commanded and exhorted the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. What's interesting is when you look at the, at the Mosaic law, the scripture condemns inheritance taxes because inheritance was to be passed on to the next generation so there could be an accumulation of wealth over the generations. And you see this uh, condemnation of inheritance taxes in Proverbs 13.22 and First Chronicles 28.8. Another thing you see is there's, there's no property taxes. God is the one who ultimately owns the property, not the government, and there's no property taxes because property taxes come back and, and uh, bite the next generation when they inherit it, 
and they have to if there's any back taxes they have to uh, they have to pay that off so property taxes are understood by the bible to destroy the accumulation of wealth and the development of prosperity also the bible recognizes the validity of tax exemption in Ezra 7:24 the levites and the priests and all those who worked in the temple were exempt from paying uh, taxes now, when we look at the evaluation of the candidates in terms of the, all of these standards we get from the Bible, they both fall short, and they fall short a long way because we've been operating on a false system of economic philosophy in this country since at least the 30s with Keynesian um, views on economics, and we operate on deficit spending and many other things that just continue to uh, destroy the prosperity and the wealth of this of this nation. Uh, with regard to Senator Obama, he has introduced the Patriot, Patriot Employer Act. Doesn't that sound good? It's not good. Patriot Employer Act of 2007 with uh, Dick Durbin of Illinois and Sherrod Brown of Ohio, both Democrats, to reward companies that create good jobs with good benefits for workers. But the legislation provides... Um, Certain tax incentive if they will let uh, labor uh, let labor unions come in and to give, have elections to form them into labor unions, and that just takes away from the rights of the of the owners. Of course, the second thing about him that I just mentioned is that uh, he told Joe the plumber, "We need to share the wealth. We need to take away from those who have and give it to the have-nots." But who's going to determine who's going to determine the line of wealth? Is it two hundred fifty thousand dollars? Well, where'd that come from? Well, why not make it $125,000? Well, why not a million dollars or $2 million or $25 billion? Who decides that somebody's made too much money? How arrogant. That's like Charles Grassley from Iowa who's investigating five or six prosperity ministries because he thinks they just spent the Lord's money the wrong way. Well, who in the world does he think he is? Arrogant idiot. Who has the right to determine? And I don't agree with any of those ministries, but who has the right to come in and say that, you know, it's wrong for you to spend um, $10,000 on a bathroom? I mean, I don't agree with that, but that's their decision. It's not the government's responsibility to tell people what's acceptable. Well, next year it'll be you can't spend more than $500 in a bathroom, or you can't spend more than $50. So it sets up a terrible precedent. And it is a punishment of those who are productive. And the Bible rewards those who are productive, but punishes those who are lazy. Uh, he, uh, Obama wants to leave the corporate tax rate at 35%, which I understand is very high within the free, free, so-called free world. Third, he promotes restrictions on gun ownership. Fourth, he supports the raising of capital gains tax for those who make more than $250,000. And let me tell you, folks, $250,000 doesn't buy what it used to. Um, Many of its tax credits are refundable tax credits, which will give money back to people even if they didn't pay any taxes to begin with. Forty-four percent of Americans don't pay taxes, so they get a $5,000 refundable tax credit. That means that when they file their income tax, if they didn't pay any income tax, then the government will write them a check. He's also in favor of increasing the death tax, and there's no death tax in Scripture. It's against that. In favor of increasing the death tax or the inheritance tax for those who have over 3.5 million, and he wants to increase that to 35 percent. But McCain would set it at 15 percent for states over 5 million. And he's wrong too. 
the, the only difference is you've got a Marxist and a socialist. And the, the, the change that Obama wants, in my opinion, is just a change in degree, not a change in kind. And we've had basic trend of socialism for the last 50 years in this country, and he just wants to intensify that. McCain wants to, he proposes to reduce spending, which is good. I heard him say that he wants to increase the uh, uh, child tax credit to $7,000 a child, which is good. After World War II, uh, Americans were given a, a uh, $600 a child tax credit. Now, that doesn't sound like much today, but that was a lot in the post-World War II environment, and that led to the baby boom. And why, why in the 50s and 60s, moms were stay-at-home moms is because with a $600 per child tax credit, they could afford to stay at home and raise children. Today's money, that would be, have to be a $12,000 tax credit per child in order to have the same, uh, the same result. Uh, the other positive thing about McCain is he favors less restricted uh, gun laws, but he is still, uh, still has bought into the same basic framework of economics that Obama has. The Nonpartisan Tax Policy Center concluded that uh, if all things are equal, that is, no new wars and nothing else changes, Obama's plan would cost $2.7 trillion and McCain's would cost $3.7 trillion. But then that doesn't factor in the $700 billion plus in extra spending that Obama has uh, in his plans. So what we see in both of them is a, a continued support for the unjust taxation system of the United States that violates the principles of private ownership of property that is supported in the, in, in, in the scriptures. And we must take heed to a statement from 1918 in McCullough v. Maryland that the power to tax is the power to destroy. Watch out. Father, we thank you for this time together this evening to go through these things to see how your word gives us a framework for evaluating what goes on around us today. And we pray that, uh, again, for our country, for our nation, that our freedoms might continue and that people would be awakened to the realities of the, the programs that are being promoted by the politicians of this country that seek to destroy their freedoms and seek to take away their, their resources and their wealth. Father, we're thankful that we have immeasurable wealth in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we can rest and relax because you are in control of history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.